This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Here's the thing. We're a team of thieves. And when you do this, you're bound to make enemies. Sometimes those enemies come looking for revenge. Truth be told, we help the wrong person steal the wrong thing. We didn't mean to unleash the greatest evil the world has ever known. But we're gonna fix it. So how do we pull that off? Uh, figure it out over a drink. Probably best. You need to give us a fighting chance. We're gonna need strength. You got this, right? I know you don't. We also need courage, magic, and you. What is that again? It's an owl there. Let's go! Be warned. There is evil here. I'm glad he's on our side. This one's dangerous. But whatever happens... Exactly that you bring to this. I'm a planner. I make plans. You've already made the plans, so if the existing plan fails, I make a new plan. So you make plans that fail? No. He also plays the loot. Not relevant. Since its March 29th opening, Paramount's Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, has earned more than 120 million worldwide. Visual effects played an important role in creating the spells, the creatures, and the rich world of the popular role-playing game on which the movie was based. And to do that, directors Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly turned to visual effects supervisor Ben Snow of lead visual effects house Industrial Light & Magic. Ben is a four-time Oscar nominee for Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Star Wars Attack of the Clones, and Pearl Harbor. And he's our guest on this episode. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Ben, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. So the movie was so much fun. And uh, to make it, you had to capture the feel of this wildly popular game, but you were also creating a movie. Would you talk a little bit about just how you balanced those two things? Yeah. Um, 
We were, it was very important to us that we do keep true to the spirit of Dungeons and Dragons. And, you know, a lot of people on the crew had played it when they were younger. And in fact, the visual effects team, we had a little D&D session going uh, where we rolled up characters. One of our uh, coordinators is a dungeon master, so he was able to come up with a nice adventure for us that kept us occupied at least during pre-production before we started shooting in Belfast. Um, and it was good. Uh, so, you know, we had that. We have, of course, the wealth of material like the dungeon guides, the monsters guides, all of that sort of thing, dungeon master's guides, um, to draw from. And then we had uh, one of our producers, Ashley, was sort of um, representing the Wizards of the Coast team who were also looking at stuff, and they kind of are in control of the, the canon of D&D. And so they would be available to consult on spells and that sort of thing. So it was a, sort of consistent to what I'd experienced working with Lucasfilm on, on various internal uh, Star Wars projects I'd done at ILM, um, where they were very supportive story group, very helpful. They don't necessarily straight jacket you, so you don't feel like, oh, you can't, you know, create or build on this. Um, it was very, I thought, collaborative and supportive, and it allowed us to uh, take the best, be able to use the rich illustrative history of Dungeons and Dragons and the rich lore and consult how the spells would work in the game and then try and capture that for the screen. And the film is also a comedy. How did that balance inform your decisions? Uh, we took it very seriously, honestly. Um, there was There's comedy in the writing, but everything about the world was taken sort of seriously. I mean, you know, obviously some of the creatures are amusing, um, but in terms of the spells and stuff, it was pretty serious, <laughs> I would say, yeah. Let's start with some of the creatures. Loved the puffy dragon. <laughs> <laughs> Thembershord, yes. Yeah, that was great. We were worried that it wouldn't fly with the studio. Um, so the directors had written it that way. We started storyboarding and previews. We started previews pretty quickly on the heels of storyboarding. And, um, you know, there were a couple of great uh, sort of um, brainstorming sessions we had with the directors and the, and the previews team and storyboard artists just throw ideas around about what would be fun for this dragon to do. It's very important to John and Jonathan that the dragon be still a threat to our actors. Um, it's uh, he is large and overweight, and he um, but he's still formidable, a formidable opponent. And um, he's gotten so fat though that his uh, his firing mechanisms don't work and you just see these sort of feeble sparks at the back of his throat as he discharges gas <laughs> at our at our people so yeah um so he was uh taken from the red dragons of dungeons and dragons which are really one of the iconic figures but we've seen a lot of very successful dragons in recent years um you know the game of thrones and and, and all sorts of things uh so it was really a chance to do something different. Obviously, you need to do a dragon. It's Dungeons and Dragons. But how do we make it something unique to this film and fun and new for the audience? And I think that that was, that was why, why we ended up with him. So tell us a little bit about more of the creation of the character from his look to the way he moves. And did you have any inspirations or references that you used? Yeah, actually. Um, 
Yeah, the directors talked about uh, extremely overweight dogs like Dachshunds and, 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 and those sort of things on their backs trying to get on their fronts. And um, the uh, NPC uh, animation soup in charge, Mark, had collected some beautiful footage of um, corgis, I think they were, overweight corgis, um, rolling around and, and struggling to get to their feet. That was one of our references for motion. So we put together a bunch of stuff like that for motion. Seals, you know, there's a great moment where the dragon rears up and starts sliding down the hill of bones and that was sort of... Um, you know, like seals, uh, elephant seals sliding down into the water. Um, design, uh, Wes Bird, I think, did some of the initial designs and then uh, Legacy Effects, who did the um, animatronics and creature work, Shane Mann and the Legacy Effects team. Um, so they picked up the design and did a lot of um, design exploration. And actually, because we were trying to pin this down, because we were a little worried about, you know, whether we'd be able to get away with doing the dragon, this this uh, fat dragon. Um, we had uh, third, uh, sorry, um, we had Day for Night, who were the previous team on the production, um, build him quite early on, actually, uh, during pre-production. They built a pretty good version of him, actually, quite nicely uh, rendered even, just so we could do a turntable and show everyone this is what it's going to be like. And actually, in the end, particularly once I saw the action and the storyboards, everyone was all in. So so by the time we got to shoot, we were pretty comfortable that this was a big dragon. Now, of course, the scale of him made it very difficult during the shoot to really, we couldn't really, we built a proxy head that was just basically a printout. It was, but it was so enormous, even that, even it was pretty hard to deploy. So... You know, when we filmed it, we kind of had a couple of our production assistants running around with giant poles <laughs> trying to pace the dragon <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, just gave everyone eye lines uh, like we would with a transformer or something like that, large. To what extent did you rely on animatronics in, in this film? Well, we, uh, you know, the directors absolutely embraced the idea of the animatronics aesthetic, a little bit like in Star Wars films, they have animatronics um, and they're, you know, you can sort of tell it's a puppet or, or whatever, but it's kind of part of the fun of it. And that was the way the directors felt about them in this film. So originally there were plans for us to do a, a bunch of digital work on top of the animatronics. But in the end, it was decided, look, that's part of the aesthetic, let's just let it breathe, which I think for most of the audience works great and they actually really love it. The I know the actors really loved having the, the characters on set with them. Um, we actually did some tests with uh, some of the cat people uh, later on that we meet when we first meet um, uh, Reggie's uh, character. Uh we did some tests of making the cat a little bit more expressive and, and, and articulate. And in the end, we kind of reined back on it. Um, we did it a little bit with uh, Jonathan, the bird man that we see early on in the film. But no, in general, we kind of left them in intact. And so they did um, Jonathan, who's the winged um, uh, member of the High Council that, that we meet early on, they did um, the Dragonborn, um, and we did. We were going to change his articulation a little bit, but in the end, we uh, 
we kept him pretty intact. And that was a pretty elaborate costume they made with a Waldo system and everything to drive his facial performance. Then we had the cats. We had this giant fish that uh, Zenk rescues the baby cat from. Um, and uh, then uh, the corpses, I think, were the other really big one. Um, that was a lot of fun. Um, they, they were pretty much practical makeups. We did a little bit of facial enhancement. But the beauty of working with Legacy and with Shane is that he and I go back to Galaxy Quest in terms of working together and Iron Man <coughs> particularly was an intense show that we worked on together. And so there's a great language. Oh, okay, we'll do this. Can you help us out with this? We won't be able to get the, you know, for example, one of the corpses, you know, the actor was so thin to be able to fit into the costume that um, we weren't able to, they weren't able to build a lot of the articulation into the mouth. So Shane's like, look, can you guys help us out there? There were some places where we were doing negative space. So it was a good collaboration between practical and digital. And do you want to tell us a little bit about the um, creation of the owlbear? Yes, the owlbear. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a beloved character in Dungeons & Dragons lore and a pretty formidable uh, monster in, 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 the, in, the, in the canon. But, uh, or creature, I guess it's been reclassified, is my understanding. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, um, it was originally, you know, th there's a lot of good artwork of that creature, but the directors wanted, again, something quite distinctive. Um, and we ended up with this sort of one, sort of uh, integrating elements of a snowy owl. So it's big and white and fluffy. And... It was one of those characters that sort of appeared very briefly um, initially when we first meet Doric, uh, the tiefling character. And so, you know, it's kind of set up as a joke because you don't realise it's her until she transforms into the owlbear. And um, so we um, did the design. Um, ILM ended up creating the creature. Um, we shot it. With, you know, we had a stunt guy in a white costume, but of course he wasn't quite big enough. Little owlbear heads on poles and then references of real feathers that we photographed for reference. Um, and she was so, it was one of the very first sequences that we did. Um, second unit did some of it and first unit did some of it. And then we gave it to Ireland pretty early on. So they started giving us animations pretty early and everyone loved it. And so... They were like, okay, we need to bring the owlbear back in the in the, in the in the climax of the movie when everyone's facing off. Um, so, so we got some more owlbear shots, which was good. It was just good. You mentioned Doric. Now, um, her transformations throughout the movie, I'm sure, were a challenge. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, it's interesting. The directors did not want to see her facial transformation. They just felt like it would be grotesque and creepy and they didn't want that for the character. So we kind of, you know, you re you don't actually see, you see her transforming from one wild shape into a different wild shape, like she transforms from a fly into a mouse and then into from a mouse into a bird and that sort of thing. And um, then you briefly sort of see her transform, transform from an axe beak. So... Um, that was an elaborate sequence, the escape sequence, and that was the very first thing that we started prevising. Um, third floor started that previs, and then 
day for night, did a bunch more work on it as we were getting closer to the shooting. Um, and so we had a pretty good template for what we wanted to do. It changed a little bit. For example, um, she didn't transform back into Doric as much in the original version. She just went from animal to animal. But it felt like we were losing the connection a little bit to her. So they had a scene which they added where after she um, transforms into a mouse in this big explosion in, uh, in the grain room, she runs into a suit of armour and the real full-size Doric pops up and then the real Sophia Lillis is running down the corridor in a suit of armour and then a guard swipes at her and she turns back into a mouse. It was a lot of fun to, to plan and shoot though that scene, just even working out how we blended everything together and then when we were transitioned from one set to another but also then, um, you know, Things like when the guys were diving after the mouse on the stairs, we used a little laser pointer to give them a guide to where to jump, where they were jumping to, the stunt team. So, And also to give the camera guy a note. So it's a little bit like you're playing with your cat with a laser pointer, but with a bunch <laughs> of stunt guys jumping down the staircase. So that was fun. Um, yeah, and then um, we kind of... We tried to shoot as much for real as possible. So there were real sets and we tried to shoot the takes as long as possible. So we had to go digital where um, the mouse runs up this sort of hapless guy in a, in a cell, in a jail cell or a dungeon, I guess, up, up, the, up the character and then goes up into a window and it turns out this cell is quite high in a tower and jumps out of the window. And originally our plan was to shoot that in... Um, in Rocamador in France, but um, because of COVID, getting there, getting a big cable cam rig to go the whole length. Rocamador is a beautiful city in, in um, the Dordogne area where um, it's built into this cliff, so the city sort of cascades down the cliff, and we thought that would be perfect for the uh, ramparts of Neverwinter. But we weren't able to end up going to shoot there, so we ended up getting a French, a local French um, survey team to go out and get filming permissions and then basically capture the whole location. So then we had a virtual version of this location. And so MPC uh, converted all of that scan into something that we could use for the castle. And then ILM combined that with um, their Neverwinter Castle that was in other shots. So it was a, a great sort of blend between MPC, ILM and the scanning company. And, um, yeah, it was... A shame not to go and shoot in France, but, um, you know, it, it was good that we were able to still use the location that we wanted and um, that uh, we got to it, – it, it gave us a lot of flexibility too when we, when we came to choreograph the bird flight and such. In the end, you end up filming in um, Iceland and Northern Ireland, correct? Yes. So we filmed um, uh, the opening scene we filmed in Iceland uh, where they're um, – you know, uh, they escape from the the, uh, the the first dungeon of the movie, which is this large tower, um, a panopticon type thing, and then um, and they're working on the ice and such. Um, and then we, sh but a lot of that we shot plates in in Iceland and, and used in combination with foreground dressed sets. Um, and then. Uh, yeah, pretty much the rest of it was in Northern Ireland and a little bit we went to Annick Castle. So scenes um, as they're, 
there's a pretty funny scene where Edgen is uh, trying to sneak into the castle and he uh, Simon is projecting an image of Edgen um, for for the uh, to fool the guards and it all starts going wrong and so we shot that at Annick Castle in in, in the UK um, yeah but that was basically it yeah Northern Ireland and a bit in the UK saw you were also in the credits as second unit director. Um, yes. What was your involvement uh, in that capacity? Actually, that was fun. Congratulations. Yeah, was, thank you very much. I was, it was nice. Got into the DGA. That's always great. Um, so, yeah, in that case, um, the main thing that I was involved in was actually that direct chase I was telling you about. So um, they had a cat and a dog for real. The dog is no longer in the movie. Um, but at one point she comes down this chimney and turns into a cat and walks across the room, looks over, and originally she was looking at a dog. So we had a live cat and a live dog, so I directed those shots with the cat and dog actors. And then also the scenes where she's running, where where uh, the mouse turns back into Doric and she's running down the corridor. Um, so that was, that was some of my second unit stuff. <laughs> That's great. It was the te- visual effects intensive technical uh, <laughs> type stuff where we had lots of passes. I think they saw the, the director saw the pass list I'd come up with. For There's a scene where it, early in that sequence she gets spotted by Safina, the, the, the wizard, uh, the red wizard, and she sort of screams and the fly flies through this wall into this grain room and this was a real set. Um, Sam Conway, the um, special effects guy, rigged shelves to fall and I even had him, uh, he made a real, a, an angled version of the floor that we could tip tons of popcorn down to get the popcorn uh, rolling as an element. So I think when the director saw this list of elements, they're like, okay, <laughs> here's your chance to make your debut and uh, they went off actually and shot the scenes at Annick Castle while I was doing <laughs> but it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Now, I understand you also have a story about the uh, gelatin cube that uh, Chris Pine, Michelle Rodriguez, a few of the characters find themselves in in the uh, third act sequence set in the arena. Tell us about that. Oh, the gelatin, the gel cube is was a challenge. Um, number one, you know, there's been gel cubes in movies a fair bit recently um, and TV series. So people are somewhat familiar with it. Um, and, of course, you know that when someone goes inside it, they sort of get eaten away is what ultimately happens to them. But it was quite an important player in this film and we were really concerned about how we would make this all work and how the characters would look inside the gel cube. And there were actually some spirited arguments about what would happen to someone if they were suddenly plunged into jello. YouTube actually has some quite useful videos because people do this on YouTube now, make a whole <laughs> swimming pool full of jello and jump into it. But there wasn't enough material that really gave us what we wanted to know. And I was insisting that the clothes and hair would all get squished by the jello and it'd be matted against the bodies and and stuff. But there was disagreement on this issue. So in the end, um, Jeremy Latcham, one of our producers or our main uh, producer, went and got uh, the creative producer uh, working with the directors, went and got 
some Barbie dolls, or actually I don't know how he got them because we were on full lockdown in Belfast at the time. So how, how he got them, I don't know. But he came in with these Barbie dolls and I had asked Sam Conway, our special effects guy, to make a tub of clear slime in a transparent container. So we had a tub of gel and a Barbie doll and we shoved the Barbie doll into the tub. And sure enough, as I thought, the hair got squished against her and the clothes got squished against her and there was irrefutable evidence that that's what could happen. <laughs> so we then shot a bunch of tests with second unit um, where we smeared stuff on the, on, the, on the second unit stand-ins and did all sorts of weird stuff to their clothes and, um, and then did things like high-speed photography with a phantom to see because as they jump into the gel, they have to slow down to a stop. Um, so we decided shooting high-speed would help us with that and then we also got these really large, thin silicon membranes um, that we could basically when we shot the actors and we so we had two of the actors suspended and two of them were on these uh, plastic um, platforms that they could easily slide off. And then we took this um, silicon stuff and pressed it against their faces so they were all squished up and we were able to film them, these passes, with the compressed faces that we actually used in the final shots as well. So it was a crazy science experiment that, you know, I think in the end it, it tells the story pretty well. Let's talk about the spells, um, the portal that they, yes. they use in many important scenes. Um, tell us about creating that scene. Yeah, that the um, the hither-thither stuff that Simon, I guess Doric finds it, um, or she she has, it's her old walking stick that she got for her ex-husband. Um, so Simon realises this is a hither-thither stuff and that allows him to portal. So that very first shot was kind of a fun setup. We had a sheer rock wall that we'd, cut a hole into that he could go through. And so when it came to shoot the shot, we shot a pass with the with the hole in there and then we pulled out the hole and we had a camera uh, as far back as we could get it on the stage and we'd actually spotted this um, stage thing so we could get the camera far back, shooting back through the hole and it was in sync with the camera that was shooting the shot. So Simon steps, looks through the hole and we use his image on the other camera composited in, in the distance to show him coming through the other side. So he's perfectly in sync. Um, and then he puts his head back through and this sort of thing and, and has a bit of fun with it. Um, so that's how we achieved that particular shot where we needed both sides at once. We needed to see him and the other actors through both holes. A lot of the other stuff was this elaborate planning mechanism, a planning thing that, where I ended up creating all these spreadsheets and, um, and uh, like almost like PowerPoint presentations of, okay, here's a picture of the shot. This part is going to be filmed on this location and the camera has to be here and this part is going to be filmed on that location and the camera has to be there. And then sometimes there was a third part as well, like you might see the road going past. So that was that was um, a complicated shoot to plan. One of the most elaborate shots was one where um, Doric again, she seems to have the elaborate uh, effectsy stuff to do on this film. She actually steps from one side of the portal through the portal into the other side, and the camera goes with her and does this. Um, it essentially does this 
180 turn as she goes in. But on top of that, the camera does this sort of orbit around until we end up looking back through the portal that she came through. And it was a really tough one to plan. I worked with the DP, Barry Peterson, and with Erin Rigel, who was the art director that supervised th those sets, um, uh, you know, under production designer Ray, Ray Chan, who was sort of the overall production designer. But Erin and Barry and I were sort of sitting down there with the real set trying to work out how we were going to get the camera to do this thing. We'd done a bit of previews on that particular shot, which was good. Um, but the sheer physics of the size of the set and then getting the camera in meant that we had to come up with a way to open the set up so that the camera starts below the set and then it rises up. This is on the B side when she's standing inside the carriage. As the camera comes up, one of the walls of the set is actually open, wild. The camera moves out of the way of that wall, grips, close the wall and open up the other side to give the camera room to get her all the way around her. It's kind of weird and you don't really think about it when you see the shot, but it's it was uh, it was um, quite a... There were a bunch of little, not little problems even, quite elaborate problems on this film like that, that luckily it was a great team uh, working together to, to work out how to solve them. What was the most challenging shot or sequence in the movie? I would say we talked about the ones that were probably the most challenging in terms of planning. Um, the other thing about the dragon chase was that um, it had a whole series of, uh, it's quite a long distance they travel over. And even though the, the backgrounds are, you know, largely computer graphics and map paintings and that sort of thing. Um, all of the areas they interact with and run on have to be real. And so um, this was, again, a collaboration with, uh, starting with the previous, um, my team in VFX worked with um, Shira Hockman, who was the art director on that set, to do this weird Tetris where we came up with all these set fragments. For example, um, there's a scene where the dragon, they're being chased by the dragon and he basically jumps on this platform they're on and breaks it and it starts tilting like a seesaw. And so Sam Conway, the special effects guy, made this rig that could tilt um, on demand, but it also was part of the roadway. And so we ended up making that part of a long flat area that they ran across and then rearranging it overnight to be the Hill of Bones that they first ran up, the same platform we just put a lot of bones on there and they ran up that so it was it was um kind of a imaginative use of uh, different set pieces to make this final playing field that they're in what was the cast like to work with um really good um you know obviously um someone like chris pine has a lot of experience in michelle rodriguez making this sort of film so they kind of instantly know, um, you know, what to do and stuff. But what I loved about the other cast members is they were just so game to learn stuff and they wanted to do their own, as much of their own stunts as they could. They wanted to be as real as they could and we would have them hanging upside down and, and you know, suspended with all wet down as if they've just been in the gel cube and everyone, there was no, never a problem with them. I mean, they weren't precious. They were very, very collaborative and patient. And, you know, sometimes you're explaining something or trying to explain something that, you know, 
we we on the visual effects team might know this thing intimately because we've put so much work into how how are we going to shoot this and a few of the other set people on set know but a lot of the people on set are like what the hell are we doing here this is just ridiculous why why is the camera upside down and back the front for this you know um but uh, the actors were you know they'd sometimes ask questions about why but generally it was like what do you need me to do it was great they were they were terrific what was most rewarding for you working on this project? Um, I honestly sitting with an audience watching it at the end. It's just, it's a fun movie, and just the delight. I guess I didn't, and it's you don't necessarily know which bits are going to delight people. Like, um, there's a scene. It's a bit spoilery. I don't know, but um, yeah, there's a sp- scene where Do- uh, where um, Michelle Rodriguez's character Holger goes and visits her ex-husband, and he's played. It, it, he's her ex-husband turns out to be a halfling, so he's about three feet tall, and um, played by an interesting actor who did a great job. And it's funny. I've that was my more- next question. <laughs> I, I was always thinking about that as it's a big emotional moment for Holger. So when we were trying to imagine how we would photograph it, um, we were setting up so the eyelines would be right so she would have direct eye contact with the actor and then we'd be able to shrink them and, and did all this sort of planning on the basis that this is quite an important emotional scene for her. But, of course, then I saw it with an audience and the delight they had when they saw this smaller version of someone that they knew well was amazing. And they just didn't, you know, one audience I was with just was laughing the whole way through. The other audience was clearly getting into the emotion of it. So, I don't know, it's 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 it's, it's kind of fun to, to be work on a project that works on a bunch of different levels like that. It, it did get a big laugh at the one I was at as well. Yeah, that's good. And and now that it's out, and I think a lot of people have seen it, I think we can say Bradley Cooper um, <laughs> is he nailed it. But but would you elaborate on how it was shot? Um, it's interesting. Uh, yes, it was shot all sorts of different ways. I had a bunch of techniques worked out actually, based on what I thought the shots were going to be. It was actually a sequence that we did not storyboard and we did not um, previous. Uh, other than some little studies to work out how big we wanted the person to be. Um, and uh, it, so I had all these different recipes depending on circumstance. For example, his wife walks in and kisses him on the head once. Um, and so she has to really re- interact. As I mentioned during the initial, uh, that, that it was supposed to be an emotional scene. But I don't know if you're aware of this, we actually shot it originally with a different actor who was extremely good, but they were a very good actor, but the joke of him being so small didn't work as well because you didn't know the person. Uh, 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 he, he was a known actor, but not a terribly well-known actor, not, not Bradley Cooper level known actor. Um, and so we originally shot this with Michelle, with this other character. We did all those shots. They actually turned out really well. Um, and the technique we used there was to shoot him real size in oversized uh, in furniture the right size and then shrink him in place. So that was what I called the shrink in place technique and we used that for most of the original shoot. But for the Baroness who we meet in the Absolution Council earlier on and then she sort of uh, turns them in later on when they're trying to creep into the castle, 
She was also small and we shot her in an oversized chair in her scenes and shrunk the chair down. So we had both methods available to us when we originally shot uh, Marleman, which is Holger's husband's name, his scene. But when we came to reshoot it with Bradley, it was, you know, a year later or whatever. And um, so in that case, because it was all going to be blue screen, then we just used the large chair. So Bradley was in a chair that was exactly the right size. We built a giant door and other sort of oversized props. And so we'd been prepared to do that on the original shoot, but it was um, it wasn't going to be possible to get the coverage that the directors wanted to do it that way. So in the end, it worked out pretty well, actually. Um, and uh, my recommendations for anyone facing this sort of work is storyboard it, pre-visit, agree what it's going to be. And then um, once you're in the technique, you kind of have to stick to it. So when we did the Bradley, we stuck entirely to the to the oversized chair. And the other thing was that directors wanted him to be even smaller, the size we had originally, which we'd kind of all worked out in pre-production. Because you didn't know who the actor was, you were like, oh, that could just be a small actor, um, you know. And so it didn't quite have the fantasy or the the delight. It didn't, as it does once you say, oh, Bradley Cooper, who we know is a tall guy. So, yeah, it was an interesting <laughs> interesting thing, a couple of different techniques there. But uh, I think in the end, by doing it in the big chair and then shrinking everything down, it kind of made it a lot uh, faster and easier to do. And then um, ILM had done the original shots with the original actor and they'd already done a lot of the work of getting, um, you know, even when we had him in the right spot for his wife to kiss him on the head, um, we still had to manipulate it a little bit. So they'd done all that work and we were able to then share that with Onyx, which was the uh, uh, great LA-based uh, studio that did the final shots for that sequence. So basically what you do is you shoot the original scene with the camera at a certain distance from the actor and then to make them smaller, you offset the camera. And it's actually pretty straightforward mathematically. So. So what, what we had to do was I had to work out where the cameras were in the original shots and then offset them to get the new angle. Uh, Dennis Stewart, who is our, our uh, executive producer, called it the, the slide rule gang when Ben, oh, Ben's getting out his slide rule again. So it was like literally just doing the math to work out how far away he would have to be. And then honestly, doing it that way in video assist, you can just, you know, half mix him over and see if it lines up, and which it did, so... Yeah, it worked out pretty well. Um, so the downside of it, which of course is unavoidable if you're shooting it later, is um, Bradley had to, you know, create the emotion. You know, there wasn't the same emotion. It was he had to really act his emotion out, which of course it's Bradley Cooper, so no, no worries there. I'm sure he and Michelle had a lot of fun on that side. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Would you like to give a shout out to your visual effects team? Yes, yes, absolutely. So um, uh, Diana Giorgiudi was my visual effects producer. Um, the work was mostly done by Industrial Light and Magic, um, which was led by Scott Benzer and Dave Daly as the VFX soups. And um, Catherine Bluff as the producer and um, Corinne Tang as the producer in ILM Sydney. So it was in San Francisco and Sydney. 
Um, moving picture company, Khalid Al Maneri was the, um, and I hope I pronounced your surname right, Khalid, was the um, uh, visual effects supervisor there. And they did the Red Dragon and the Doric transformations and that sort of stuff. And then we also had help from Crafty Apes and from Onyx, who did a bunch of effects work, um, smaller effects work at the, at, to, as, during post. And will you be returning to the Dungeons and Dragons universe? <laughs> I hope so. I think the directors are working on uh, working on a follow up. Um, I believe there's plenty of cool stuff coming with Dungeons and Dragons. I'm onto a different project for the moment, but I'm hoping that by the time this finishes up, maybe there'll be something new with Dungeons and Dragons. We'll see. And last question: mm-hmm. Who became the best Dungeons and Dragons player during production? <laughs> I don't know. You know, the actors had some pretty serious games going. Our visual effects game was a bit more of a, you know, because we were under COVID, right, and you're in the office and you have to wear masks and you have to um, isolate and all of these rules. So basically this was our chance to sit around. We had this giant conference room table so we could all socially distance. We would order these pizzas and beers and it was our chance to like actually see other people socially. And I think that that's what Dungeons and Dragons might be for a lot of people, right? It's a chance to sit down, have a drink, have fun, tease each other and that sort of thing. So um, I I was a uh, dragonborn paladin and I was pretty successful on one of the campaigns. <laughs> But I would say Charlie Rock, who was our dungeon master, was really the star of our dungeon, uh, Dungeons & Dragons experience because, you know, the dungeon master has a lot of the heavy lifting to do and particularly with people who may not have played the game for 20 years or more and are like, what do I do now? So, yeah, he was, he was our MVP on, on the dun- Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> gaming side. And you said the cast had a game going as well? They had games going, yeah. Yeah, like um, the directors actually, I think, were fans and actually play, you know, I think uh, John Daly plays a lot of uh, uh, D&D. Um, so, yeah, I think there were other little side games going. <laughs> but, you know, you kind of don't want a too big a group together. You want it to be. So the VFX si- size team was about right. You know. <laughs> Well, really fun film and uh, congratulations on the success. Good to talk with you again. You too. It's always great. And thank you so much. 